Hey everybody, welcome to Listen Money Matters. A fool and his money are soon parted. My name is Matt and I'm here as always with Andrew. Andrew, how are you, man? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm I'm tired. To be quite honest, I drove <laughs> home from New York last night and like three in the morning. It was it was a late night last it was, night. It was a late night. So I am uh, I'm struggling to stay awake, but that's fine. That's fine. I'm okay. Let, uh, before we get started, if you guys have any questions about personal finance, uh, budgeting, investing, blah, income, debt, doesn't matter, shoot us an email with your question, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. And we also want submissions for catchphrases at the beginning of the show. Today's catchphrase, a fool and his money are soon parted, was a catchphrase from our guest today. His name is Professor Edward Castronova, and he is one of the leading experts in the field of virtual currency and online game studies. And he's the author of the new book, Wildcat Currency, How the Virtual Money Revolution is Transforming the Economy. Edward, how are you today? I am doing great, Matt and Andrew. I'm glad you're awake. <laughs> I, I'm, I've been awake for about an hour. I'm good to go. And I want to start, because this book, I have a copy of the book in front of me, and I know Andrew, uh, while he was away on vacation, had read the entire thing, and you talk a lot about the de- like how you define money, right? So I yeah. want you to start off by telling me like how you define what money is. I would say I take the way economists define money, and I would add one more thing, okay? So here's how it normally money gets defined. It's, it's anything that's used as a medium of exchange as a unit of account, and as a store of value. Okay, those are the three functions of money. And anything can do that. Beaver pelts, cigarettes, you know, anything can meet those four. I'm going to add a fourth one, though. I don't know if it will be picked up by econ in general, but I think money is also a source of fun. It's a source of joy. Mm-hmm. It's another function that it fulfills. So um, if, you, if you think about it, you know, like I said, almost anything can meet that definition. And so it's really important to get readers to understand money is not what, let's say, the government says, well, this is money. You know, it could be a lot of other things, too. So I found it really interesting in the book. And like you just said, like cigarettes and how uh, people in, in jail may use it to, to barter for goods. And um, you, you actually build like this really great analogy and kind of like history knowledge up to wildcat currencies like like digital virtual currencies um when when you say wildcat currencies what do you mean so wildcatting was a, a way of drilling for oil back in the 20s and then the field was not very well regulated or observed and somebody discovered oil in texas and oklahoma and so people just said hey there's oil here and they started throwing up oil wells all over the place and those people were called wildcatters. And it seems to me that's the situation we are with money. Is people are just, anybody can just run around and make up a new currency. And, uh, and you know, for some people, they think that's wonderful. Some people think that the wildcatting was great. You know, it was free enterprise. It was the Wild West. Other people are horrified, you know. So I, don't, I try not to get into the political weeds too much. But I, I'm just trying to say that's the nature of the phenomenon right now. So uh, I, I just got back from vacation, and, and one of the things that uh, you get beyond a tan is, is frequent flyer miles. And in your book, you, you describe it as, as a virtual currency, and it, it didn't even occur to me. Uh, could you kind of like elaborate on that? Okay, so if, if let's, let's talk about cups of coffee. It's even easier, right? You go down and you get 
a cup of coffee at the coffee store and they give you a little card that says, you know, we'll stamp this every time you get a cup of coffee. And when you get 10, you get a free cup of coffee. That's great. So that thing is actually transferable, right? Once I have like nine stamps on it, I can like give it to somebody and say, hey, you know, it, or, you know, you can go and get, get a free cup of coffee with this sucker. So it's a, you know, it's like a, a way to transfer value, isn't it? Frequent flyer miles are the same thing. Um, at first, it was like, okay, only you could use your miles to get a flight for you. And then it became, well, you can use your miles to get a flight for your wife or a friend. Now it's, you can use your miles to get, you know, uh, points off a vacation or off a hotel. And then it's like, you can use them to get a t-shirt. <laughs> and so it gradually changes from being this customer loyalty program to being a source of purchasing power. And at some point, you know, those, remember the four things I said, the, the definitions of money, different parts of that are being ticked off, you know, well, store value, sure, medium and exchange, unit of account, like I could, I could take my real world bank account and express it in terms of united frequent flyer miles if I wanted to, you know, I, and I, I could speak that way. If I wanted to, because it's a it, there's an exchange rate between frequent flyer miles and dollars. So um, once you start realizing, hey, the frequent flyer miles, green stamps, you know, almost anything can be money. And computers and technology are allowing a lot of these these sort of loyalty and point systems to be broadly used. So um, I, I, I want to talk on Bitcoin in a second because I feel like it's the next uh, step, but. Yeah. Uh, you you have something like frequent flyer miles, and and I know that dollars don't inherently have value, but I would say uh, at least the government says they do, and we all kind of have agreed it. Frequent flyer miles, like you could buy them, you could sell them. It, what what's? I I don't know. I'm kind of like confused. Like how can that be a currency uh, of of any meaningful value if if um. Because they have purchasing power. Look, what makes something money? So I, I gave you like the economist definition, but here's the here's the machine that makes money work. Okay, the machine that makes money work is a thing called um, social expectations. So the, what makes money work is the simple fact that other people will accept it. All right, if anybody else will accept. Uh, uh, this dice that I have, I have a, di a D20 in my hand. If someone else will accept this in return for something that I want, like a Diet Coke, then this little piece of dice, you know, can act as money. So it's really, it's, so it could be a piece of paper, and what, what, and it could be beaver pelts, or there's an island in the Pacific where it's big stones. All the, the stones don't move, but what they do is they say, okay, that's your stone today, and now you gave me a new boat. So, uh, I'm sorry, it's my stone today, you gave me a boat, and so now it's your stone tomorrow. <laughs> and so anything that, that people will trade with can become money. Um, the difference between different kinds of money is, is in how well they perform. So the dollar has a great thing going for it, which is security. If you operate in the dollar, you can go to courts, you know, and, and the dollar has to be accepted. The law says that if someone gives you a dollar... If for a debt, you have to accept it. And, you know, people don't have to accept Bitcoins because it's not backed in that same way. 
So no. I, I think that's where I'm like maybe confused because when you have frequent flyer miles, United has agreed that they will then accept them back for a flight. But I, and I know now you could buy like a Domino's pizza with Bitcoin. But when it was first created, you couldn't buy anything with Bitcoin. It was like like a further abstraction from the dollar. So how is that even valuable? Well, you know, just look at behavior. I mean, let's, you know, to get out of the digital age, you know, how is it that the cigarette became currency inside of a prisoner of war camp? You know, yeah, I never, I never thought of a cigarette being a form of currency, but it absolutely is. Yeah, and, you know, economists have gone and studied World War II POW camps to just see how it all emerged. And, you know, it has something to do with, you know, the features of the cigarette, the good itself. But the basic phenomenon is always the same. It's that people need to trade. It is cumbersome to say, okay, I'll give you three bars of soap if you'll give me your pillow. You know, it's like, let's just do all the transactions in terms of cigarettes, and it's just a lot easier to keep track of things. Um, you know, cigarettes are small, they're divisible, they're lightweight, they, they, you know, you can carry a lot of value in just a few cigarettes. So these are the features of money, you know, and dollar has, dollars have a bunch of features, and Bitcoin has a bunch of features. I mean, any of these cryptocurrencies have one overwhelmingly advantageous feature, which is they're not encumbered. The transactions in the in the dollar world are heavily regulated and taxed. So any money that comes along and can do what the dollar does without being regulated and taxed is going to have an advantage in this competition of different ways of paying. Do you argue that uh, these wildcat currencies are a bad thing for the economy? No. Okay. I try to avoid – I mean I, I think it, it comes down to your politics and how you feel about the state as to whether or not this is good or bad. I, I feel like my job was to kind of assess what, what's probably going to be a longer-run implication of this, which is the, the more cryptocurrencies there are, the more difficult it is going to be for large organizations to keep track of what's going on, especially governments. So I think – we may be entering a period where the state is relatively weaker than it has been in the last hundred years or so. And that's For because of technology? That, yeah, because of this, this money technology being freely available to anyone. It's not so much the idea that uh, something like a Bitcoin will take over the world's currencies. It's more that the transactions will happen at a very, very micro scale and will be unobservable, whether, mm. whether it's in Bitcoins or something else. You know. Well... So you say unobservable, <clears throat> and and in the book you you say that technically anything digital, I mean is is observable, and like you could check the the chain of, of use of a particular Bitcoin. So wouldn't that mean that it could eventually be regulated and encumbered like the dollar? I, yeah, I think in principle anything can be tracked down. the The question is, is it going to be worth the cost? It's it's this it's this trade off. You know, imagine you know the government is trying to catch these mice, and the the value of catching the mice is a certain amount, and but it requires expenditure to go catch the mice. So, you know, at some point, you know, it, it's just not worth it for them. And and I think, you know, opposing. So on the one hand, we have the ability to trace and track and record and do like big data sorts to discover things. So there there's that take technological capability on the one side. On the other side, you have technologies of an anonymity, of fluidity, of 
you know, deception and, and speed. And so it, I, I see it as an arms race. I'm not enough of a technician to know who, who might win or lose this. I, I think it's just going to be an ongoing competition. With no winners and losers. Yeah. I think I'll, I will say this, though, that right now we're pretty much in a 100% observed economy. And I think the future is going to be something less than a 100% observed economy. I mean, 100% is too strong. There's plenty of shadow economy. But I just think the economy will be less observed in the future than it is now. And when you say observed, you mean the government has control of it? Yeah. Okay. Basically, anytime something moves in the economy, there's a tax. Right. So I think, you know, there's natural tendencies for the economy to avoid that, for better or for worse, again. And... uh I think these technologies will enable some movement in that direction. And that has big implications for the state. That means the state is going to have even more difficulty gathering resources than it does now. So uh, one one uh, example that you provide in the book that, that really uh, caught me was, you know, like you could be in a game like World of Warcraft and they use gold to trade inside of the game. But um, there are people who uh, sell gold for actual dollars. Yep. Um, and so you have this, this situation where, like, dollars are flowing through the virtual game. Um, and I'm sure the government knows about this. Do, mm-hmm. do you think this is a, a problem or that they'll start taxing game currency? That's a, uh, so let me just be, go on the record. You know, money laundering is a crime. <laughs> And any time you have flows of money like this, you can launder. I mean, the the latest laundering trick I heard is that there's there are dead currencies, dead cryptocurrencies, and people are offering to exchange your live cryptocurrencies into the dead ones and then back out again, again to kind of you know create invisibility, right? To mm. so, because when you go from one system to another, the traceability breaks down. So, um, uh, you know, money laundering is a crime, but at the same time, does that mean that if I'm in a video game and I use my, you know, gold crowns to buy a magic helmet, that I got to pay a tax to the government? You know, that would be a horrible mistake. So, I, you know, I think we need to, as much as technology is breaking down these barriers, it makes sense for us to kind of put some barriers back up, say, to protect the game space. And it may also make a lot of sense to say there's a legal space here, only dollars in here. Um, so, I mean, that's a that's a legislative policy conversation that, that we have to have, and soon. But isn't that, like, when you talk about these World of Warcraft coins or, or whatever, I'm not familiar with them, and, and even Bitcoin uh, kind of goes over my head, uh, isn't, when it, when it boils, when it boils down... Isn't it because Bitcoin can be traded for dollars at some point, and that's what makes it valuable? I wish I could say yes. That, that's let's let's go back to the games. It'll make it a little bit clearer. Okay. When, this is like a decade ago, and people started, you know, in a game like EverQuest, they started um, selling the go- the game currency for real money, and uh, and people said, "Oh my gosh, you know, does that mean that everything happening in the game is real?" And I would stop and say, "Wait a minute." Even if that trade to the dollar didn't exist, right? even if nobody ever traded the gold piece for the dollar, the items created in virtual environments, game environments, do have economic value, right? How in do that I game? No, just economic value because the, 
the source of economic value is our feelings. It's called the subjective theory of value. It goes back a hundred years, and it explains why we can, like, I can hold up a diamond, which is basically a useless rock, and it's worth ten thousand dollars, right? Even if I don't trade it, you know, people treat it like it's a ten thousand dollar thing. So the source of value in goods doesn't come from like their use or how hard they are to make. It comes from this social expectations business, this this collective understanding we have of what's valuable and what isn't. If I go into a game and I spend a thousand hours in there with all of my friends and we all decide that the 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 helmet of doom is the most amazing helmet, that helmet has genuine material value to me as a person and uh, and to that community. And that's that's the source of value of things. So even if Bitcoin even if Bitcoin didn't trade against the dollar, right? Mm-hmm. If if it's simply the fact that you will give me a jacket if I give you a Bitcoin, boom, that gives Bitcoin value. That makes it valid. Makes it valuable. I don't know what valid means in this context, but it's. I'll put it to you this way. Again, let's go back to the diamond example. You may yourself decide that the diamond is worthless. This is a stupid thing. It's a rock. I don't care. But once you know that other people will pay ten thousand dollars for it. You're forced to treat it like a $10,000 item, even if you yourself don't care. It's it's up to society to decide what has value. Hmm. Society decides that Bitcoin is valuable. It is. So uh, this may be a dumb question, but is it then down to, to marketing? I mean, we're all talking about Bitcoin and it has value, but I know there's like dog coin, which Do- is Dogecoin, tech- yeah. Do- yeah. Dogecoin, there's all these like weird coins and they're Hot technically coin. no different, but we all care about Bitcoin. Yeah, that, that, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. It's like, why, why is it we all care about the one that has B-I-T on the front instead of D-O-G-E? Yeah. They're kind of built the same way. Um, that's a social convention. You know, why do we drive on the right side of the road? We could drive on the left side of the road, but we drive on the right. A lot of this is history. It's called path dependence. If you get into kind of the higher math of these things, um, uh, in, in terms of game theory, it, it's called a coordination game, a massively multiplayer coordination game. And those things, uh, I wouldn't say marketing is necessarily the word I would use. I would say first mover is important. If you're the first person to invent the typewriter and you lay out the keys as Q-W-E-R-T-Y, guess what? You just invented the keyboard for all the rest of eternity, mm-hmm. even though there are much better keyboards out there. So um, uh, marketing can have an effect if you like all the competitors are kind of small, which they are right now. So it could be that, that some big player could invent a cryptocurrency and then advertise it everywhere and then boom. It's the big one. Look at Facebook, right? It was a late entry into that field, and yet it won. Hmm. So, the I forget where in the book, but I got this like weird feeling how uh, you you were saying you know things are moving digitally, and then, I mean it's obvious how we use credit cards more than physical dollars, and you know there's Bitcoin, and and this will happen more often. Should we be like? Concerned that the dollar will not maintain the value it has in just in terms of being a currency of meaning. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, it depends on your age. I'm 51. I think anybody older than me doesn't have to worry too much. 
because I think this is this is one of these things that's going to get going and take you know five to ten years to really roll off. But um, if I was in my twenties and thirties, I would look to a future where you know I might have bank accounts in several different kinds of currency, and I might use them for different sorts of activities in different ways. Do you see that as like a future investment strategy? Just being not all dollars? Uh, at the moment, I would not advise it as an investment strategy because you don't know who the winner is. If you like risks, you could pick a, a cryptocurrency and buy it now while it's cheap and think, who knows, maybe in 20 years this will be worth like 10,000 times more than what it is now. That, that's, that's, it's that kind of a bet. It's like a penny stock kind of bet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a it's a risky kind of thing, you know. It's yeah. because right now the scale of these things, one rich guy in Cyprus can you know dramatically affect the exchange rate in the course of a day, or if some news story comes out, you know, you'll see big fluctuations in the exchange rates. So I wouldn't invest just yet. Is there a is there a possibility of oversaturation? Um. Yes. Okay. So this will be similar to what happens in a lot of these social media fields where yeah. you get a million people trying it, you know, different ways and someone will make a coin that is more viral than Bitcoin is. Bitcoin has difficulty going from one person to another. There's there's too many too much stuff you got to do to get it rolling. Right? And and you know, it's just it's it's user friendly enough for like MIT graduates to mess around with it in Boston, but you know, I live in Indiana. <laughs> if I go down to the mall, I'm not going to see anybody using bitcoins until it becomes just as easy as watching Dancing with the Stars. Right. <laughs> got a ways to go, right? Get there. One one thing that uh, you you bring up, um, and just on the on the dollar point, you know, we have our physical dollars, and you could say like, look, this is a dollar. I mean, it's here. It's in the real world. Um, but you know, when you're using your credit card, using your debit card, we're just pushing bits around. They're just you yeah. know items in a database. Um, do do you envision like a, a Fight Club type scenario where they just go in and just like alter the numbers and things get all ridiculous? Well, I mean, I think ridiculous is a really good word. Or a friend of mine, Clive Thompson, has a book called Smarter Than You Think, and in it he says we're not thinking big enough or really weird enough. <laughs> You know, it it it's just gonna be weird. I was in Target the other day, this is in Indiana, right? And this lady just waved her smartphone at the cash register. Mm. And that was it, you know, and so the cash register and the smartphone worked out whether or not she could buy that bathing suit. And you know, I think we might be moving towards something like that where you just as you walk through and you pick something up and you, you just walk out of the store with it and you keep doing that until the lights go off. <laughs> They say no. You don't have any. Yeah, you that you know, like Minority Report. Yeah, yeah. I think those kinds of futures are not that far away. No, I agree. And, but, and again, it's because the, the, there's tremendous incentives for people to kind of get out of the system that we're in right now. Yeah, I, I mean, when you did the research for the book, uh, did you come to any negative conclusions on why these currencies could be bad for the economy? Well, yeah, because. Um, we've had private money before, okay? So you have to understand that the history of official money has been, you know, a bunch of pretty smart people saying, you know, it's too chaotic. When you've got lots of different forms of private money, 
then you know the the possibilities of financial panic go way up. So there's been this constant push to kind of say, let's just have one single regulated currency for the health of the economy. And uh, so that means, and if that's breaking down a little bit, there's possibilities that you know, will enter into a future where people can't really rely on any of their money. That let's say, let's say you, you know, the government is relying a lot on a certain sector of the economy to be healthy, but that sector of the economy gets involved with cryptocurrencies. Some of those cryptocurrencies go down. You have a financial panic. You remember 2008? It can happen with the dollar. It can happen with other things too. Right. You know, and then and then you you know you've got the the government sort of being flat-footed and and being out of resources. So, you know, the idea of a whole bunch of intertwined public and private currencies where, you know, if one goes down, it can cause others to go down. I mean, that's that's what a financial panic is. So, that that could be bad. That could be really bad. All right, I have I have one last question, because. Um, I understand that that the more prolific a currency is, you know, the, the better it is because it re, you know reduces friction and, and trade and stuff. But uh, you look to the dollar, and you know it's it's great, and people you know you know buy and sell oil on the dollar. However, you look to the euro, and they're having like major difficulties. Yeah. Um, how how do you reconcile that? Like, how does the future currency avoid the same fate as the euro? Well, I think the euro is an example of how it, it's hard to have one currency because currencies have different features, like they grow at different rates. And in, in some parts of the economy, you know, you really want the currency to be growing really rapidly. In other parts, you want it to be growing slowly. And when you have one currency for the whole economy, then, well, it's only going to have one set of features and it's going to be good for some people and bad for others. And, and so in Europe... You know, the people in Portugal and Greece are like, no, 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 we need looser money. And the people in Germany and Denmark say, no, no, we need tighter money. Well, there's only one form of money that creates tension. Um, and I think that's that's like another reason why it's it's just hard to have one currency. There will always be an incentive for some kind of break-off. You see, there's a tension. There are good things about having one currency, and there are good things about having lots of currencies. And there, you know, there are bad things about both of those. And so the world is just always navigating in between. The thing that's different right now, or what we can say right now, is that we're going from very few stable regulated currencies into something that is more chaotic than that, and that has certain good and bad implications. And you outline all of these implications in Wildcat Currency. I do the best I can. I would never say all of them. Fair enough, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> there are more raccoons in Wyoming. Who would have known? <laughs> so where can people find the book? Well, go to Amazon cool. and search my name, Castro Nova, Wildcat Currency. That's the best place to get it. Yeah, and we'll include a link to it in our show notes. And if anybody's interested, you can send us an email address at listenmoneymatters at gmail.com, and we'll get you the book. Uh, and if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever. Uh, that would be great. And, Edward, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, so, uh, you know, hopefully if we get any emails, we can forward them over to you. Maybe you have some questions. And, of course, when we put things in the show notes, we have comments and stuff. So we'll keep you posted and keep you in the loop on those things. Absolutely. I'm happy to be in this conversation. It's right. fun. Excellent. So, guys, uh, listen, I, as I said before, if you like the show, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen. And I do want to read a quick review that we got from iTunes. 
Uh, it's a five-star review. Great podcast from CJM82582 from the United States. I am hooked on listening to Personal Finance Podcast. I am so glad I found these guys. They are super down-to-earth and entertaining. Keep up the good work. That's a good one. I like that one. Short and simple. That's all we really need. And guys, last but not least, if you want to learn more about personal finance and money management and wildcat currencies, we are always writing new stuff and posting up new episodes at listenmoneymatters.com. So that's it. Edward, thanks again for hanging out with us. And we look forward to the next episode. So later, guys. Later.